Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. The following is a live performance by the Butterflies in Spirit Performance Group at the Lisa Marie Young March for Justice in Nanaimo, B.C. on June 26, 2021. Butterflies in Spirit is a performance group consisting of family members of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. They travel the world, bringing awareness to the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We are grateful to Butterflies in Spirit for allowing us to use their content in this episode. We're going to finish off with the Women's Warriors song, which is a song that came to Martina Pierre in a sweat lodge ceremony. This is a song that is for, came to her for our people, our indigenous people, but it is also well known, very well known for MMIWG. Oh, and if anybody knows this song, Please feel free to come and join us with your drums or stand with us and sing with us.
Justice delayed is justice denied. When justice is delayed to a victim and their family, it can feel like a continued assault. It has been 19 years that a Vancouver Island family has been denied justice or answers. This begs the question, how long is too long? It was the summer of 2002 when a 21-year-old First Nations woman went missing in Nanaimo, British Columbia. She was outgoing, vibrant, driven, and independent. Plenty of tips, witness accounts, and evidence have come in over the years, including the name of the man who drove her away from her friends that night. To this day, no arrests have been made. So, how long is too long? This is the story of Lisa Marie Young, and this is True North True Crime. everyone and welcome to episode 30 of True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. We know we have quite a few new listeners lately so we want to welcome you to the podcast. If you're new to True North True Crime, we are an independent and self-funded podcast that brings awareness to missing people and victims of violent crime in Canada. We are not investigators and our intention for this podcast is to help boost these stories that often fall quickly out of the headlines. We want to shout out some awesome folks who bought us coffee this week. A big thank you to Took a Look, DDS, Pooby Vumadi, Jesse R, Gail M, Maureen, B, Sarah H, Queen Nebulous, and five anonymous donors. If you would like to buy us a coffee, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com/tntcpod. It can be a one-time donation, or if you would like to become an honorary producer of the podcast, you can choose the $5 a month member option. So let's get into tonight's case. So tonight we are talking about the disappearance of Lisa Marie Young, who went missing in Nanaimo, British Columbia in 2002. She was just 21 years old. This episode was a lot to put together. We're trying to assemble 19 years of information into a single episode. So bear with us as we try to tell the story. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles, including an article titled Lisa's Story, published by the Native Women's Association of Canada. We are very grateful to have interviewed Cindy Hall, who was a missing persons advocate and family friend of Lisa Marie Young, as well as Carol Frank, Lisa's aunt. We thank them for trusting us with telling this story. This case has gotten a lot of media coverage due to a highly motivated group of people who have been calling for justice in this case. We first heard about this case when it was featured in 2016 on the Australian true crime podcast Case File. More recently, former CBC journalist Laura Palmer did an amazing 10-part deep dive into this case in Season 1 of her podcast Island Crime, titled Where Is Lisa? Please listen to that podcast. It is exceptional, long-form journalism. There is little doubt that Laura's podcast, as well as the work of Lisa's family and supporters, are what has thrust Lisa's story into the media spotlight, making it one of the most talked about murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls cases in Canada. In fact, in 2020, 
Member of Parliament Paul Manley spoke at length about Lisa's case in the Canadian House of Commons. Her story is now part of the permanent public record at the highest level of government in Canada. This episode is meant to continue the awareness campaign. We will present what we know, but we will be cautious around any information we have learned that may affect the investigation. This is an ongoing and active file with the Nanaimo RCMP. Before we move forward, we need to acknowledge that in June of 2017, Lisa Marie's mother, Joanne Young, passed away. Joanne was a tireless advocate for her daughter and for missing and murdered women. She fought for her daughter up until she could not physically fight anymore. We know that her loss has affected many people who were close to her. So this case takes place in Nanaimo, British Columbia in 2002. Nanaimo is located on the ancestral territory of the Sunema First Nation. In the modern day, the city is the second largest city on Vancouver Island with a population of just under 100,000 people. For those familiar with our Jordan Hauling episode, you may remember that Vancouver Island is a huge chunk of land that sits off the coast of the mainland of British Columbia. While it is an island, it is not a small island. It's actually bigger than the country Belgium, but it only has a population of about 1 million people. This lack of large population, coupled with a lot of space, makes Vancouver Island a very popular place for people who want to enjoy the mountains, lakes, and scenic coastlines that make it such a special place. Nanaimo is located around the halfway point on the eastern side of the island. This location makes it easy to get to from northern and southern points of the island. It is also a quick ferry ride away from Vancouver. The accessibility and location of Nanaimo has earned it the nickname Hub City. There are amazing neighborhoods and people in Nanaimo when you get to know Nanaimo. We have spent a lot of time there, but upon first glance, Nanaimo can have a rougher edge. Maybe it's an echo of its roots as a tough coal mining town. Crime-wise, Nanaimo gets a pretty bad rap, especially in the 90s and early 2000s. The port and its accessible location has made it the perfect place for drug trafficking. This has had a trickle-down effect, and the good people of Nanaimo have been hit hard over the decades with the side effects of the drug trade and organized crime. Nanaimo is policed by the RCMP. It would seem at times in the past that even law enforcement were intimidated by the rampant gang activity in the area. It's with this backdrop that we introduce you to Lisa Marie Young. Lisa Marie Young was born on May 5, 1981. Her parents are Don and Joanne. Her mother Joanne is Cleoquiot First Nation, which is located in the Tofino area of western Vancouver Island. In fact, Lisa's grandfather Moses is the current leader of the Cleoquiot First Nation and has been for the last two decades. Lisa's father, Don, is a non-Indigenous person who was originally from Ajax, Ontario. He came out to British Columbia looking to start a life on the West Coast. Don and Joanne fell in love and would go on to have Lisa as well as Lisa's two brothers, Brian and Robbie. Joanne remembers Lisa's determination as a small child, stating, When I told people that Lisa was walking at seven months, everybody thought I was lying. But she was always a really determined girl, ever since she was a baby. Joanne also remembers another early indicator of Lisa's fierce independence. On her first day of school, Lisa didn't cry or become anxious. She said goodbye to her mom and just ran off towards the school and the other kids. But Lisa was also careful. When she was just a young child, Joanne remembers that Lisa would always take her time opening Christmas gifts. She wasn't a rip-and-tear kind of kid. 
Instead, she would open the gifts neatly and thoughtfully. As a sister, Lisa was a protector for her brothers, and she absolutely loved and adored them. As she got older, she became more assertive, earning herself the family nickname Bossy Lisa. Carol, Lisa's aunt, told us a little about what the family was like and about their time living between Gabriola Island and Nanaimo. Where um, my sister and Don got married was on Gabriola Island, and the kids were quite young, and they always did family things together, like they'd go camping, go for picnics, or like trips. They'd go um, as a family. They, When the kids were young, they'd go. My mom lived on an island 30 minutes from Tofino, so they would take a boat up there and go spend a weekend or a few days up there with my mom and her late husband. So they they always did, uh, they liked doing outdoor things together. In middle school and high school, Lisa began to find her love of sports and fitness. She began to play basketball and other sports. Despite being on the smaller side, she gave everything she had on the field or the court. Lisa often spoke about one day becoming a sports commentator. Lisa also did volunteer work for the Parks Board as a day camp leader. Eventually, Lisa landed her first paid job at McDonald's. By all accounts, she really enjoyed working with customers and her fellow crew members. Things weren't always perfect, though. As we all know, teen years can be stubborn and challenging. Although Lisa and her mother loved one another very much, they began to butt heads a lot in Lisa's teens and it was decided that Lisa would spend some time in foster care. In care, Lisa began to experience the independence that she had longed for. When she came out of foster care, she got her own apartment with roommates. So this apartment was right beside Don and Joanne's place, and Lisa spent a lot of time at Don and Joanne's place. It's almost the perfect metaphor of Lisa's love of her family coupled with her strong independence. In the summer of 2002, Lisa was doing well. She was at the precipice of finding herself and her way in the world. She had a tight-knit group of friends who always stayed in contact with one another. She loved the live music scene in Nanaimo. In fact, she even worked as a server for a short period of time at The Jungle, which was a popular nightclub at the time. Here's Carol. Lisa's aunt, talking about the time leading up to Lisa going missing. Like I said, she moved out on her own. I don't know how old she was, but um, she had really some really close friends. And um, she was working as a manager, I know, at at McDonald's. So I remember my my late grandpa, her, her great-grandpa, would go visit her at McDonald's and go say hi to her. And then she was in the process of moving when she went missing. And she was just going to start a new job and move into a new apartment. So that was, and then her goal was to, she was wanting to be a sports announcer because she loved what she loved the sports and she loved the Vancouver Canucks so that was one of her goals that she wanted to to do in her life. So by Saturday June 29th 2002 Lisa was 21 years old and like Carol said she had some pretty big things happening for her. The first was that she was starting a new job at a call center. This was something she was looking forward to. It was a new direction away from the food and beverage industry and perhaps an opportunity to make a little bit more money. The second thing was that Lisa was moving into a new apartment. 
Lisa had made plans with her father Don and her mother Joanne to help her move on Sunday, June 30, 2002. That night, Lisa's friend Dallas was celebrating his birthday, and from all accounts, Lisa would not miss a friend's birthday. She believed that all birthdays should be celebrated, and they were important. Before Lisa went out that night for Dallas's birthday, she headed over to Don and Joanne's place to have a beer with her dad. As the evening got later, Don and Joanne suggested that maybe Lisa should just call it a night and not go out. It was getting to be around 10 or 11 p.m. and Don and Joanne wanted to make sure that Lisa was fresh and prepped for the move the next morning. But Lisa insisted on going out. Like we said, she loved supporting her friends and their birthdays. So just after 11 p.m., Lisa headed out to the Jungle Nightclub on Skinner Street in downtown Nanaimo, the same nightclub that she had worked at for a short period of time. It is assumed that she got to the club around or before midnight. By all accounts, the night was fun, the club was busy, and everyone was having a good time. At closing time, which is 2 a.m. in British Columbia, clubgoers poured out onto the street as they do. They also mingled in the parking lot beside the club. Lisa and her friends were in a group and talking about maybe hitting up a house party. It was at this time that a clean-cut, preppy-type man in his mid-twenties came over to the group to strike up a conversation. There has been no evidence presented that Lisa had spoken to the man in the bar or if Lisa and her friends had met this man before. It would appear that he seemed nice enough. He would offer them a ride to the house party that they were chatting about. It was then that the group saw his car. An older model, red or maroon, Jaguar with square headlights. Based on the headlight description, this could have been a European-released Jaguar XJ40 manufactured between 1986 and 1994. The square headlights were legal in Canada and Europe, but not in the U.S. at the time. This would have been a rare car for Nanaimo in 2002, and even rarer for a man in his mid-20s to be driving it. The group of friends hopped into the Jaguar and headed to the house party, rumored to be in the Harewood area of Nanaimo. At the first house party, the group was maybe not feeling the vibe, so they decided to hit up a second house party. This party is rumored to be in the Westwood Lake area of Nanaimo. At around 3 a.m. at the second house party, Lisa stated to the group that she was feeling hungry. Lisa was a vegetarian, so the options on Canada Day long weekend at 3 a.m. were pretty limited, and there was literally nothing she could eat at the party. Jaguar Guy offered to drive her to get a bite to eat. It has been rumored that they were going to a 24-hour Subway restaurant that they knew would be open and have food that she could eat. The driver of the Jaguar said he would drop her off at home afterwards. Lisa's friend Dallas, who was having the birthday, wanted to stay at the party and by that time was pretty drunk. So Lisa and Jaguar Guy left the party, just the two of them, at around 3, 3.30 on the morning of June 30th, 2002. About an hour later, at around 4.30 a.m., Dallas received a call from Lisa. Dallas recalled that she said that Jag Guy did not take her to get food but that he had taken her to another party. She stated, quote, Dallas, I don't know what's going on. This guy won't bring me back. We're sitting in a driveway on Bowen Road, and he won't bring me back. Dallas got the feeling that she was more annoyed than scared. But keep in mind, he had been drinking a lot. 
We believe that the phone call was followed up by a text message to Dallas. And keep in mind, text messages were rare in 2002, only used when you absolutely could not talk or in an emergency. That message is alleged to have stated, Come get me. They won't let me leave. It's important to note here the shift in language from he won't bring me back to they won't let me leave. This would imply more people were involved. Dallas did not go to get her. He suggested she leave and get a cab. It should be mentioned here that Dallas passed away a few years ago. So this was the last time anyone ever heard from Lisa Marie Young. Her last phone activity is alleged to have been in the Departure Bay area of Nanaimo. The next morning, Lisa did not contact Joanne and Dawn like she was supposed to. Keep in mind, she was supposed to be moving that day and needed her parents' help. Joanne and Dawn eventually contacted the police, but they were told that they needed to wait 24 to 48 hours to report a missing person. This, as we all know, is not standard anymore in 2021, and even in 2002, it was becoming an antiquated idea. Eventually, an RCMP officer went to their home on Sunday, June 30th, 2002, in the afternoon, to take a statement from Joanne and Dawn. Apparently, the officer was alleged to be reluctant to do so. In fact, after he took their statement, the officer told them that he was heading out of town and would be back on Friday, July 5th, and that if Lisa was not back by then, they should contact him. We asked family friend and missing persons advocate Cindy Hall about those first few hours and days. So Lisa went missing, and the next morning her parents thought it was different. They couldn't get a hold of her, but they thought maybe she stayed somewhere. So they went out for breakfast, grabbed breakfast, went down to Departure Bay Beach, went home. Um, they started looking for her pretty early. I would guess maybe 11 a.m., 12 p.m., because I was at my mother and father-in-law's, my husband's um, parents' home, when they called looking for Lisa. And his stepmom asked us if we heard from Lisa, because they called everyone in her address book. And then they called the police right away. And the police went take a missing statement. And they said that she was probably off and that she'll come home later. I don't know, the typical thing they say about Indigenous women. And then Lisa's parents knew something was wrong. So I presume they kept on, like, I guess harassing the police to do their jobs. And then that evening... A police officer went and took a missing report and then told them he will be off till Friday. And I think it was like almost a week and that her parents can contact them if they haven't heard from her in that week. Uh, they did not start searching for Lisa until September, I think. So you heard that correctly. Lisa went missing on June 30th and the RCMP did not start official searches for her until September. We asked Carol about the day Lisa went missing. Well, I live in uh, Long Beach here, and my sister, my late sister, uh, Lisa's mom, she goes by Joanne, but I call her Marlene because that's what I knew her growing up. Um, my sister um, called me, and 
told me that that her that Lisa was missing. Um, she told us what happened that she went out and they couldn't find her. So right away that that same day, we all we all left to go to be with her in Nanaimo. And I remember because it was the day that she called us. It was my dad's birthday. Joanne and Don were determined to find their daughter. They reached out to the Cleoquiat First Nation in Tofino for help, and members of Joanne's nation descended on Nanaimo searching for Lisa rather than the RCMP. Carol shared with us about the early searches for Lisa. But it did really upset my sister that um, the RCMP didn't do a search right away. I think it took them, my niece went missing June 30th, and they did a search in late September. And it was our nation, where I come from, that got a, like a dozen men. And just from tips from that my sister got, they would go and search areas like Coombs and Nanaimo. And our family did that a lot on our own and with the help of like uh, sometimes they would announce it on the radio. So we'd have like a couple guys come from Portal Burnie that we didn't even know took a day off of work and helped us search. Like we searched behind and I'm all Rutherford Malder. There's a, there was like a land pit there and other times we've gone with the psychic and, and done searches on our own. So that was one thing that, that really, bothered my sister and our family that there wasn't, you know, a lot more searches going on for Lisa from the tips. And um, so we did that on our own. Lisa's mom, Joanne, did her own investigations on the ground. She interviewed and connected with many people on the street. Carol remembers how hard Joanne worked to find her daughter. Yeah, my sister was, she's a really strong woman and she wouldn't, she wouldn't take for an answer. She, she would always call the police or, you know, go see them. And she wanted to make sure that everything and anything was done for my niece. Because when they first went to go see her, the police officer said that he was going off for a few days and she wouldn't take that. Like she didn't say, Oh, I'm not waiting till Friday to, for you to contact me. She said, I want to talk to somebody because that's my daughter. And you know, how many days it'll be like four days. And she wanted something done now. And she was always like that. Um, speaking to anybody and putting up posters and, um, she, she, at first she was hesitant to talk to the, um, media, like she didn't want her face like to be on the news or like, but she, she, she realized that's what she needed to do to, to help bring Lisa home. So she did that over the years, over and over and talked to Anybody that would help her, try help her find find Lisa. She was really, really uh, strong that way and had, had her voice and, yeah. 
So obviously the biggest lead was the Red Jaguar. And according to Cindy, it was Joanne and not law enforcement who identified the driver of the Jag. Um, Joanne did her own investigation and talked to a lot of sex workers and Christopher Willem Adair was going to sex workers and that's how she found out his name, but he told the sex workers a different name if I remember, but I could be wrong. But Joanne tracked him down and that's how she, um, yeah, she tracked him down through sex work and talking to people, sex workers and just talking to people. So within weeks of Lisa going missing, Joanne identified Christopher William Adair as possibly the last person to have seen Lisa. She did this by hitting the streets and talking to sex workers who knew him to be a client. Although he used a fake name with sex workers, they all knew the Jaguar that was registered to his grandmother. The RCMP brought Christopher in for questioning. They also asked Joanne to speak directly to him. Apparently this took place at the Parksville Detachment, a smaller town located north of Nanaimo. The story told by Casefile states that Joanne entered the interrogation room where Christopher was seated. On a whiteboard was Lisa's photo, and the words rape, torture, murder were also written on the board. What happened next is shocking. Here is Cindy recalling the interview. So I've only heard from Lisa's mom, Joanne, how that went. And she told me herself that they took her there, they made her talk to him, they made her hug him, and that he just, I guess, mumbled that, like, he was sorry and he didn't mean to disrespect them or something, but he didn't give Joanne info. So just to summarize, Joanne identified the last person to possibly see her daughter, Lisa, alive. The RCMP picked him up two weeks after she went missing and interrogated him. Christopher released no information. Police would then let him go after he mumbled an apology. But before releasing him, RCMP asked Joanne to hug him. And what about the Jaguar that was owned by Christopher's grandmother? Well, before the RCMP had a chance to search it, the car was steam cleaned. And then, after it was searched... What did the grandmother do with the Jag? She sold it. She sold it after the police team looked at it. They looked at it, but it was already clean, Joanne told me, and then the grandmother sold it. So the RCMP released Christopher, and the Jag was searched only after it was cleaned, and then it was sold. So to add to the frustration, unconfirmed reports state that the RCMP allegedly pressured the young family to not name Chris Adair on missing posters or when speaking to the press. Apparently, the RCMP were concerned of a defamation lawsuit, and it would seem that this was a credible concern. In 2016, the podcast Case File was threatened with a lawsuit for naming Christopher Adair in their episode about Lisa Marie Young. However, Christopher's name is now part of the public record after being named by MP Paul Manley in the House of Commons on October 8, 2020. So, we feel comfortable naming him in this episode. So, who is Christopher William Adair? In 2002, Christopher Adair was a preppy man in his mid-twenties from a wealthy and influential Vancouver Island family that lived in the area of Parksville and Qualicum Beach, which is just north of Nanaimo. Adair's grandmother, Geraldine, or Jerry Adair, died in 2011 and was a prominent realtor in the town of Qualicum Beach. 
Her spouse, Chris Adair's grandfather, William Kurtz, who died in 2003, was a former Parksville alderman and also was the mayor of Parksville between 1976 and 1981. In 2002, there is evidence that Christopher Adair had a history of involvement with the justice system in British Columbia. Some of the offenses on his record include assault. Since Christopher walked out of the police questioning in 2002, traces of him have been hard to find. There is evidence of criminal charges in Saskatchewan after 2002. Others have speculated that he moved to Japan. Others believe that he is back in Canada. To this day, neither Christopher Adair nor anyone else has been charged in relation to Lisa Marie Young's disappearance and probable death. So let's dig a little further into this case after a quick break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And we are back. Since 2002, Lisa's family and community have done all they could to help the investigation. Sadly, like we stated at the start of the episode, four years ago, Joanne, Lisa's mother, and her fiercest advocate passed away. Here is Cindy talking about how she got involved with the case. So around four years ago, Lisa's mom, Joanne, passed away. And I was just starting to post people missing people on Facebook and thinking of becoming an advocate. And then when I heard Joanne died, it just made me really think of how hard she fought for Lisa and how that she passed away, that there might not be anyone in Nanaimo to carry that on. So I asked Lisa's foster sister, Carol Ann, what she thought if we should organize a march or if I did that, and she thought it was a great idea. So then I reached out to Lisa's aunt, Carol Frank, and introduced myself, and then we started working together since then. Cindy goes on to talk about Joanne's efforts and the community response today. She did her own investigation until she died, and I wish she was around right now to see that it went further and that the community like cares now. We asked Cindy what she wants our listeners to know about Lisa. So I want everyone to know that Lisa was a young 21-year-old, vibrant, outgoing woman who had her whole life ahead of her. And one night, she decided to go out and have fun and think that she was going to come home and move and start a new chapter in her life. And that didn't happen because her her takers took her from us. 
So it seems that the Young family and their supporters did everything right. They organized searches for her, they postered the city, they investigated and generated leads, they found Chris Adair and the Jaguar, they created sustained media attention on the case for almost two decades, they organized vigils, they involved the community in yearly walks for justice, They created a highly engaged Facebook group with over 3,000 members. They conducted multiple awareness campaigns with t-shirts. Family members testified at the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. They even achieved an official day of recognition with the mayor declaring it the city of Nanaimo's Justice for Lisa Marie Young Day on June 28, 2020. The family and Joanne also pushed for a Crime Stoppers video. We need to quickly talk about this Crime Stoppers video. Joanne fought for this video for six years. For some reason, Crime Stoppers or someone kept getting in the way of it being made. When it was finally made, the actor they cast to portray Lisa was a perfect lookalike. However, when it came to the Christopher Adair character, they had him dressed like a street tough and not a preppy man. It was very bizarre to watch. Christopher is portrayed by an actor wearing a ball cap with sunglasses on the ball cap. He is wearing baggy jeans, a black tank top, and gold chain, and he has arm tattoos. He also has a scruffy goatee-type beard while he open-mouthed chews gum. He looks exactly like a Nanaimo street dealer in the late 90s. But this is not how Christopher Adair looked. We have seen pictures of him in a suit and preppier clothing. It is absolutely impossible to make this characterization make any sense. So if the Young family did everything right, what has stalled this case? We are now going to play a pretty long clip of MP Paul Manley discussing Lisa's case in the House of Commons. He will, of course, be repeating some of the information that we have covered, but we think it is important to hear the emotion in Paul's voice as he speaks of Lisa's case at the highest level of government in Canada. We need to do much more than amend this act. And the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry has called for a task force to deal with a whole range of outstanding cases. Because even to get to to be before a judge to talk about sexual assault, you need to have the RCMP or the police forces investigate a case properly. And I want to just talk about a case that's happened in my community. This is an 18-year-old case of a 21-year-old woman named Lisa Marie Young. And in 2002, on June 29th, she went out with friends, drinking, partying in town. She was at uh, a local nightclub. And at the, at the end of the evening, she went to another party and then off to get something to eat and was driven away by a young man in a maroon-colored Jaguar. She had called friends uh, to tell them that this person was not letting her go and that she wanted to, to, to leave. And her friends who were intoxicated didn't think to call police or, or deal with this, you know, to, to raise attention. The next day, Lisa Marie Young was nowhere to be found. You know, it's very clear that the police uh, did not respond in in a proper way. This was a young Indigenous woman. The police didn't do a ground search until uh, September 17th. So she went missing on June 30th, and the police didn't engage in a ground search until, until then. The RCMP didn't interview anybody from the nightclub that this young woman was at. Uh, They didn't interview 
some of her friends. They um, they didn't do a Crime Stoppers video until 2009. You know, the family was had had been asking for a Crime Stoppers video about Lisa's disappearance, uh, and and they didn't go through with that until 2009. And then they made sure that there was a a good likeness of Lisa on that Crime Stoppers video. But the young man in question, Chris Adair, uh, who was driving that Jaguar, uh, they made, he was a preppy looking kid. They made, from a privileged family, they made him look uh, like a street tough in that Crime Stoppers video. So they were botching that. The police handling of the car used to drive Lisa to her death location is another issue. The, the Jaguar reportedly was not examined by the RCMP until after the owner, a well-known realtor in Qualicum, had it steam cleaned and detailed. You know, so what, you know, if this young woman was the daughter of a judge or a mayor or a member of this house, that wouldn't have been the case. They would have been all over this right away. Um, the RCMP dismissed an urgent call from a witness uh, who was believed to be an associate and accomplice of, of Lisa's killers who called to alert the, the young family that Lisa's body was being moved at the moment that it was being moved from the original location. And the RCMP ignored that call, basically saying that she was not a, uh, a credible witness, mainly because she was tied to... to to criminals, might have been drug involved, might have been street involved. The RCMP failed to respond to other members of the public seeking to provide information on Lisa's disappearance or murder. Uh, in, in some instances, police have entirely failed to respond. In other instances, their responses have been delayed. Uh, one informer, informant, a former associate of the prime suspect believed to be Lisa's killer, one of several responsible in her death, called the RCMP in 2006 to report details of Lisa's murder, a videotape of the crime and more. What people have said about this, about this case is that Lisa was taken to make a snuff film and that she was drugged, she was sexually assaulted, and then killed by accident. It wasn't the intention to actually go through with the whole process. But she she apparently died in the process. And the people that know about this have come forward to talk about it. But because they're all associated and known to police and known to people who are known to police, it hasn't been investigated properly. It's also suspected by people in this community that the prime suspect in this case was a police informant. Laura Palmer has outlined all of this in a seven-hour podcast, and the RCMP, once this podcast was released this summer, have started actually doing some interviews of people. But this case just goes to show why the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry has called for a task force to be looking into these cases to find out why the RCMP and other police forces have not gone through the proper procedures of ensuring that these cases are investigated properly, that young Indigenous women who have been murdered and mothers, daughters, sisters have, have not had their cases taken seriously. And so we need to do a lot more than educate judges. We need to deal with bringing justice to our justice system for all, because this is, it's not justice for all right now. This is a system that prioritizes people who count in the eyes of the justice system. Because if Lisa Marie Young was a white woman and the daughter of a prominent business person in this community, 
that case would have been investigated properly. So that's a lot to unpack. And clearly there have been some issues with the investigation in this 19-year-old cold case. In the audio, Paul Manley also states that a video cassette has been recovered that may contain evidence of what happened to Lisa. We have been able to confirm that a video cassette, as well as a hair sample, has been given to RCMP. We do not know any more about the cassette or the hair sample. It's important to note that the RCMP say that Lisa's file consists of 15,000 documents, over 100 witness accounts, and over 1,000 actionable tasks that have been completed. This is not a small file, and while the RCMP had its issues with the investigation in the past, it is clear that work is being done on it today. It would seem as if things are now starting to turn a corner and people are coming out of the shadows to tell their truth. Here's Cindy. And then what really made everything break is Laura Palmer's podcast because it made a lot of people talk about Lisa. And then I started seeing people posting online that they had info and that some people tried to contact the police and never got a response. So I started contacting people who said that. And then, I don't know, me and Laura just started talking to more and more people. We cannot name these suspects believed to be involved in the murder of Lisa Marie Young, though their names have appeared online quite a bit. But we can say this. There are at least three men and possibly one woman involved with Lisa's abduction and murder. Some of these people are still in the community in Nanaimo, and one of them is dead. These people are well known to police and have had ties to organized crime in Nanaimo for decades. They are very dangerous people. Some of them have been rumored to be friends with notorious Canadian serial killer Robert Picton. We asked Cindy what her theory was. This is just my opinion from information I gathered, and I haven't verified some of it. I think that Christopher William Adair took Lisa to a house party in Nanaimo Lakes Road, and I think that there was dangerous people at the house party, and I think there was multiple people, and I think they were going to make um, a mock snuff film of Lisa. And I think that they um, drugged her and raped her and murdered her on film. And then I think that the people that were involved buried her behind the property. And then I think they moved her again. So the working theory for most people is that Chris Adair took Lisa to a house party. Then she was murdered by some very bad people. Her body was perhaps hidden on one property and then moved to a second location. One of those locations has recently come to light. It is located on Nanaimo Lakes Road. Numerous searches have been conducted by the RCMP in the last year, including two in December of 2020 at a home on Nanaimo Lakes Road. The current residents moved into the home in 2003, a year after Lisa went missing. They have nothing to do with this crime, obviously. But before they moved in, this was a pretty well-known crime house. The property consists of a single-family home on a half-acre plot that backs onto Morel Sanctuary, a 280-acre park. The RCMP, led by Corporal Marcus Muntner and Constable Haley Pinfold, searched the property with ground-penetrating radar 
a cadaver dog named Luca, as well as soil technicians. Cindy told us a little bit more about the search. Okay. So it was on a lot of property, uh, 827 Nanaimo Lakes Road, and I'm just saying that address because it was public information because it's on the news. And that search would have been done because Marcus and Haley would have had either, like, um, old information from the file or new information, and they would have had evidence to search that property. And it's also the property that Bob talked about in uh, podcast Island Crime. Um, I know a woman who lived there at the time has always been rumored to be connected to Lisa's disappearance. So it has been widely speculated that a woman in 2002 who lived at the property is connected to Lisa's disappearance. Apparently, according to Czech news reporter Kendall Hansen, who has been covering this case for years, a neighbor has come forward claiming they saw what looked like a body in a hammock on the property in 2002. Then, days later, they saw digging equipment working on the property in the weeks that followed. So far, the results of the RCMP searches remain confidential. So let's get into where the investigation is today and how you can help after a quick break. Thanks, everyone, for uh, being here today. So we just wanted to just make it clear to, to everyone that our investigation into Lisa's disappearance is, is active, it's ongoing, and we're constantly following up on, on information that's coming in. Um, I know sometimes in the past that hasn't been clear, so I want to make sure that, that everyone understands that that's what's happening. We also wanted to point out that we have completed numerous searches um, yeah, in the last year uh, to try and, and find information, try and find Lisa. And that's based on new information coming in and based on historic information. And those searches were extensive and detailed. And we have more of those searches planned in, in the future at some point. So that's something else that we wanted to bring out to everyone's, everyone's knowledge that we're continuing to do that. And we also wanted to mention that we've had numerous witnesses come forward recently um, that previously had not been comfortable, uh, comfortable talking to the police about anything that they knew. And, and it took great courage for those people to come forward and provide us statements and provide information that is credible and, and important for the investigation. And a lot of those, those people may not have been comfortable doing that early on in this investigation, but through the course of, of time and changes in their circumstances, they've, um, they've come forward to do that. So I guess with that, we also know that there are other people out there in the same situation that haven't talked to the police and haven't come forward with information that, although it may be just a small part of the, the puzzle, um, it's still important information that, that we need those people to come forward and provide statements to us. And I guess part of us chatting today and talking to you as well is just to, to relay that, that for those people out there that haven't come forward, just knowing that other people have come forward and talked to us and provide us statements, 
should hopefully give you some peace of mind and, and perhaps give you the courage to come forward and talk to us and uh, help move things forward. So that was a press conference delivered by Corporal Marcus Muttner on June 26, 2021. Due to the recent and sustained interest in Lisa's case, many people, including former gang members and criminally involved individuals, have come forward to speak about what happened to Lisa. It is clear that there has been a shift in the RCMP media relations and their approach to this case. We asked Cindy about the early days of the investigation and if Lisa's First Nations heritage was a factor. I'm an Indigenous woman too, and as Indigenous women, we feel that sometimes the police won't take it as seriously as they would a Caucasian person. So Joanne wanted Lisa to get lots of coverage and lots of attention and to people to care. And she felt that if it came out that she was Indigenous and Lisa was, that Lisa wouldn't get as much coverage. And that's why um, she didn't do camera interviews for a while, because she looks Indigenous. And Don did them because he is white. Cindy has noticed a shift between how the RCMP approached the case in 2002 and how they are approaching the case today. Um, so in 2002, I think the RCMP had a lot of their own bias and like they just judged a lot of people and they didn't really look into if it was credible or not. They would just make their own opinion where Marcus and Haley, they taken all the information, no matter what kind of lifestyle you're in, um, like the choices you've made, if you have information about Lisa and go to them, they don't have bias. They have an open mind and they're going to take your imp- information and then investigate it. Where the cops in 2002 feel like they just shot everyone down. They're like, oh, I have my own opinion. And yeah, where Marcus and Haley have a more open mind and they just take the information and then follow the evidence. So it seems that there is a renewed hope, new eyes on the investigation team, new spotlights on the case, and new information coming forward. So right now, the case is super active, and the police are receiving tips on a constant basis, and they're following them up and following where the evidence leads. And I strongly believe we will find Lisa soon. I believe there will be arrests for Lisa and we will have justice for Lisa soon because of how how the investigation is going, because Lisa's getting tons of coverage, because the people who were scared to talk to the police 19 years ago aren't as scared and the investigation is only moving forward because people keep on coming forward with information and that's what we need. No matter how little you think it is, we need you to come forward and we need you to contact the Nanaimo RCMP and give that information to them. Because it just takes that one piece for us to find Lisa and to bring her home. 19 years is way too long for Lisa to be alone. We know that hearing cases like this can have an emotional impact on our listeners. And we know that many of you want to help. We asked Carol how our listeners can help. Just to um, help uh, 
keep Lisa's name out there, and and we have had a lot of support from all over Canada with, uh, you know, with the podcast, hearing the podcast, and Cindy's, Cindy's always been out there um, as an advocate for, for Lisa, keep supporting us in any way you can, and we're just thankful for for all the support we get from the people and um, the media too is has been really helpful to our family. There is a Facebook group called Lisa Marie Young. Cindy is an admin on that group and she encourages all of our listeners to join. We will link that in our show notes. Before we end this episode, we want to share Carol's thoughts about the impact Lisa's disappearance had on her family and what she wants people to know about Lisa. Yeah, it's been really hard, um, like especially for her mom and obviously like her brothers and her dad and uh, my family, like my great my grandpa, he was 91 when he passed away and he never, he, he never got to see Lisa again. And um, I know my parents, it's really, really hard on them. Because they're getting up there in age and they, they want to know what happened to Lisa. So Lisa comes from a really big family. Like my my parents had six boys and me and my sister. So and it's really it worries them now about about their other grandchildren. Um and wanting to stress to them, you know, to be careful. She came from loving family, like family and friends, like a lot of Lisa's friends. I know them now, and they still remember Lisa. And one of her friends named her daughter after Lisa, and um, she just has a big family that misses her. Lisa Marie Young would have turned 40 years old this year. If you know anything about the disappearance of Lisa Marie Young, please call the Nanaimo RCMP. We are grateful to Carol Frank and Cindy Hall for trusting us with Lisa's story. We hope answers come soon. Our producers on the podcast are Amy's Book Reviews, Susan S., Alex and Andrea P., Kennedy, Alberta, Cindy McD., Blair M., Alyssa S., CJ Gize, Anastasia, Ariel E., Melanie E., Kelly D., Carolyn M., Emily L., Jason D., Jimmy H., Tiffany C., Keith R., Mari M., Lorena, Queen Nebula, Maureen, Jesse D. R., and the Missing and Unexplained podcast. Thank you all for continuing to join us on the podcast. We will be back soon with a new episode, so until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.